power. On the podcast, in a contest of wills, it's always best to fight the psionic with a long spoon. Meteoric rise from the black hole of despair leaves Cherenkov radiation of bluish-green delight. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to David Mattingly, science fiction and fantasy cover illustrator extraordinaire, who has done probably hundreds of Bain covers over the years, as well as covers for many other publishers, both in and out of the genre. He was also the head map painter for Disney for a while. At Bain, he's best known as the artist who does the Honor Harrington covers. So stand by for David Mattingly. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor, for which, of course, David Mattingly provided the cover. We have an April ebook sale, and it's a Doozy of bargainiferous proportions. King Jerry's Spaceship, April Jerry Pornell ebook sale. To celebrate the new Starboard and Godsons mass market edition, we're dropping prices on all Jerry Pornell ebooks. $2 off the ebook for Starborn and Godsons by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Stephen Barnes. And $1 off ebooks such as The Legacy of Herorot by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Steve Barnes, and Beowulf's Children. Those are the two sequels to Starborn and Godsons. Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr, is also $1 off. Mamelukes, Janissaries, Lord of Janissaries, Footfall, and oh so many more. Anything the late, great Jerry Pornell had a hand in, we are discounting at the Bain website and across all of our ebook retailers. So check it out. Sale ends April 30th. You also have a few more days to get in on the Bain April contest. Fool me once. April contains April Fool's Day, but we aren't joking when we say Will McCarthy's new novel, Rich Man's Sky, is sure to please science fiction readers. But we'd like to get into the spirit of the holiday, so we're asking you to write us your best trillionaires in space joke based on the concept of McCarthy's novel. The writer of the joke that makes us laugh the loudest or groan the hardest will win a signed copy of Rich Man's Sky. Send your entry in the body of an email to contest at bain.com by April 20th. Put April contest in the subject field and remember to include your name, by the way. Winner will be selected by the Bain editorial staff. Depending on how risque it is, we will even publish it as part of the announcement of the winner. Welcome, David Mattingly, back to the podcast after several <laughs> years. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. David. Uh, David Mattingly was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. He set his sights on being an artist at a young age. Um, he also started reading Edgar Rice Burroughs as a youngster because his parents gave him the middle name of Burroughs. Um, after finishing at, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, after finishing at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, 
David began his career as a matte artist at Walt Disney Studios under Harrison Ellenshaw. And uh, I think like Harrison Ellenshaw's father was also a famous matte artist you knew. Back yeah, he he was one of the best painters I've ever I've ever seen. Uh, later in life, he also became a gallery artist, and uh, his seascapes are just unbelievable. I mean, they're they're absolutely wonderful. Um, so ultimately, David became head of the Matt Department of Disney, where he worked on the Black Hole, Tron, Dick Tracy, and and a bunch of others. I think. Um, David has produced over 2,000 book covers, and he just says he just stopped counting at that point. He's worked for Bantam, Daw, Del Rey, Dell, Marvel, Omni, Playboy, Signet, and has found a home at Bain Books, of course, where he is most known for illustrating the New York Times bestselling Honor Harrington series by David Weber. He's the two-time winner of Magazine and Booksellers Best Cover of the Year Award, and he won the Association of Science Fiction Artists Chesley Award, which is a big one. For a science fiction artist. David is the author of the Digital Matte Painting Handbook, First Guide to Digital Matte Painting, which he uses as a textbook for his matte painting classes um, at the School of Visual Arts and at Pratt Institute. I believe that's two colleges, right? It is, yep. Okay. Um, he's married to Kathleen Cogswell. They live with two cats, Jackson and Juliet, in a very cool loft studio near new york city which i've had the honor of visiting it's really cool there oh thank you um is that behind you you're in your studio right yeah and this is actually a live background uh the, cool the, the top three layers are, are books all books that i've done and then at the very top there uh are my action figure collection and some of those are action figures that I had as a kid. Uh, I, I didn't save them since I was a kid, but some of them have uh, been re, uh, reproduced. Like I have the Captain action figures that I played with when I was you know, 10 or whatever. Uh, and now I bought a lot of them from Sideshow, which uh, they're, you know, when you were a kid, you'd buy these 12 inch action figures and they'd be what, 10 bucks or something. And now the Sideshow things are very expensive. They're a couple hundred dollars, so. So I keep them. I keep them out of the paws of of young visitors to my studios. Because... I see, very high. <laughs> By the time they get that tall, they know that they're valuable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. I mean, in many ways, you're you're like the quintessential science fiction cover illustrator at this point in your career. Um, and um, I, I thought maybe we could narrow it down to just some like your process and so we could we could talk about how you might create a cover from from the beginning um when you get a request to um you, and you start trying to brainstorm the concept how do you do that to sure. uh, to how do you keep creativity going throughout the process and and how do you interact with with uh, you know the, our uh art department's pretty easy <laughs> But not yeah, everyone yeah. So, it consists of Tony Weisskopf saying whether yeah. she likes something or not. But um, so uh, let me just—I mean, we could talk about a a cover in particular if you'd like to. Um, I have a bunch of of Mattingly books here that he did the the covers on. Um, have about a billion of them here. I, all I did was <laughs> through our shelves and started picking off things that looked like David Mattingly. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, I've just started finding. Whoa, shoot! I messed up the camera. I'll get that back. Hold on. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you you went very psychedelic uh, there. Uh, yeah, I've done I've done a lot of uh, covers for Steve Miller and Sharon Lee. Yeah, also, you're the Aiden uh, guy as well as the Weber guy, of course. Yeah. Um, among others, what else we got here? And you've done some other great covers, like. I have that Bug Park cover, which I think is a great little cover that you did years ago. Um, yeah, one of my one of my early uh, digital covers. You know, Jim Bain was very interested in uh, digital work, and there's, you know, I I had twenty years of painting traditionally, so I, I have physical paintings. A lot of the uh, physical paintings still in my studio, and then right around the time I got married to Kathleen, I asked my brother for a loan because I couldn't afford to buy a computer at that time. And he loaned me $10,000 and I bought a uh, computer that I was able to do uh, my earliest digital covers on. And one of those was, was Bug Park, uh, which it has, you know, 3D models and it hit, you know, then it has painting. Um, so all of the covers that I do now are done in, uh, in Photoshop, basically, along with, with some 3D models in them. So uh, as to your question as to, as to how I go about doing a cover, um, I always, you, you get sent the manuscript and now they're generally sent as a Word document. And I, I read the book all the way through and I consider it one of the luxuries of science fiction is that you generally get a manuscript in uh, other parts of illustration. They cover conference and they basically give you the idea and then you have to sort of, you, you sort of have to use their idea. And, and sometimes you don't even get a chance to read the book. Um, in, in science fiction, it's long been a tradition that they don't cover conference. You read, read the book ahead of time and decide what you're going to do. And then um, I put aside the book. I try to read the book all the way through just for pleasure. And this was something that uh, Kelly Fries talked about, uh, that he generally would read a book twice. He'd read the first time just for pleasure, and then the second time taking notes as to, uh, as to scenes that might be possibly uh, illustrated. Now, we should uh, remind people that, that, I mean, everyone should know who Kelly Freeze is, but he's one of the absolute greats. Um, yeah. Well. Yeah, he was, he, he worked, uh, he worked for um, Analog back in the 1950s, and there's a couple of books of his work, uh, work out. Um, and I, I spent, you know, some uh, a good time at conventions with him, and that's where I learned this thing. It, it basically, he, he, he felt that if you read the book constantly taking notes the first time through, you, wouldn't, you weren't able to get attached to the narrative and, and, you know, kind of fall in love with the book. And it's, you know, it's important for me to enjoy the book as I'm reading it. Um, I had an experience early in my career uh, when I was working for Judy Lynn Del Rey, who was one of the great uh, science fiction editors. She uh, basically, Del Rey Books was named after her and her husband, Lester Del Rey. And I got a book that I, I absolutely hated. And, uh, you know, I was kind of feeling my oats and feeling like, well, I'm, a, I'm an illustrator now. I can, I can go in and tell Judy that there's some morally objectionable stuff about this book and I just didn't like it. And she said, David, first of all, you're not a literary critic, you're an illustrator. And I frankly don't care what your opinion of the book is. And I said, uh, but Judy, there's nothing in this book to illustrate. And she said, there's a spaceship in it, isn't there? <laughs> and I said, yeah. She said, well, draw a spaceship. So, uh, you know, now if I, 
if, if I don't really love a book, I still feel that it, it's my obligation as an illustrator to try and give it the best cover I possibly can. So after I've read the book and then studied it for potential scenes, um, I think the best covers for books are not of, of a particular scene. And every now and then I will do a cover that's of a particular scene. Um, you know, if there's a, a scene that is just so outstanding in a book and just so obvious that you've got you've to illustrate that scene, that's fine. But what I, what I really want to do is, is encompass the entire book so that you, you, would look at the, you would look at the cover and you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I know exactly what scene that is, but that, that cover could only go on that book. And uh, actually one of the things that, uh, that, that I've sort of struggled with is a lot of times my covers are very specific to particular books. And when you look at other illustrators, uh, another illustrator who I really admire, who's passed away named uh, John Berkey, you know, his books, you could take a cover from one of his books and put it on 10 other books because they weren't narrative specific. And my cover tended to be narrative specific. They, they you know, I would, I would read through carefully and try and get the details of what the characters looked like <clears throat> Uh, and, and put those onto my covers. So uh, a lot of times my covers can't be slapped on other books once they've, uh, once they've been on the book that was supposed to illustrate them. And I actually, you know, I think that's kind of a good thing. Um, and that was one of the things that um, the illustrator N.C. Wyeth, who was Andrew Wyeth's father, and he was a, an illustrator back in the 1920s, and he did Treasure Island and uh, a, a lot of these other books. And he, he didn't like illustrations and he would actually have played illustrations in these books. And let's say he'd have 10 of them plus the cover, plus the end papers. Uh, and he generally didn't want his illustrations to be uh, you know, a, of a particular scene in the book. They, they, he wanted to catch the feeling of the book uh, and, and do all that. So after I've read the book, then I'll sit down generally with a, with a, with a sketch pad and, and start you know, trying to flesh out uh, good ideas. And then once I have reasonably good ideas, I'll scan those into the computer and then I'll work over that, you know, applying color to it because it's so much easier to, like if you have a, a, a cover idea that's halfway good, you can then take that and then duplicate it over and then paint over it. And I can't tell you how many times when I was working traditionally, where it was like, oh, I got a new idea. I'm going to try something else. And I would work over that thumbnail. And then I'd look at it and I think, gee, I wish I had that original version of it uh, left, left now because I don't like this new version that I've just created. So working digitally allows you to, to duplicate and duplicate yeah. things. And then it frees you, you up to you, do, you still move. start with a sketch, you say. <laughs> I do, yeah. Uh, you know, even though... I have a Wacom tablet. This is the uh, the digitizing uh, tablet, and every every time a new version of this tablet comes out, they say that it you know it's gone from 512 levels of sensitivity to a thousand levels of sensitivity to 2,000 levels of sensitivity, and they still haven't been able to produce something that has the level of sensitivity of a pencil, right? I mean, a pencil, it's just it's just so wonderful. You can do you know indicate things so easily. Uh, and you're not tied to the mechanics of the uh, of the project. And you know, also since I had all those years of working traditionally, 
it's kind of bled over into my digital work. If you were a digital native, I, I, I probably that those those artists don't start with a pencil uh, to get their thoughts down. But I'm I'm just kind of used to that. What do you tell your students to do? Well, you know, I teach matte painting at School of Visual Arts, and I also teach compositing. Um, and I'm always I'm always interested in trying to get them to to, to sketch things. And uh, on several of my assignments, they have to come in with a concept. And students today are constantly taking photographs of things and then dropping them into the composition. And when I'm sketching, I never allow myself to use photographs. You know, like you you can find very quickly inside of Google, you know, a hundred different beautiful skies and they're gonna look better than the skies that you sketch. But if you plop in that beautiful live sky, everything else you sketch in the, in the sketch doesn't look as good as that, as that photograph sky that you put in. So I try and get my ideas down completely without using any photography. And then I will use photography to flesh out the final cover. Well, what are you, um, you know, so what are you thinking of, when you're doing this? That's what I, I mean, because I could sit there and watch you and, and you know, and, and I could try the same thing. And of course, it wouldn't happen. So what in well, that you initial know, you, moment when you, all right, you've just read the book, uh, do you let it sit a while or do you just go out? I, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, every now and then I read a book uh, that has such an obvious scene that I've, 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 I just dive right into doing that. And, and sometimes that can be kind of a problem because I, I try and force myself to submit three or four sketches to Tony. And if I get down right away, the idea that I think is obviously the best, it's harder to produce those other sketches. I, 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 I force myself because you just never know if the next idea that you flesh out is going to be better than the previous one. And if you go with your first idea, you know, you never get that full exploration uh, of what the book is uh, has to offer. So there's a sort of rigor that you apply to yourself at that point. It's, you don't just let it go. Yeah, I I, I think that um, you know this thing of of forcing myself to come up with multiple ideas for uh, for every book. Uh, that's something I've done throughout the entire course of my career. And early on in my career, there was an expectation that you were going to produce four sketches for every book. Uh, and my, my very first client was Don Wolheim, uh, who, uh, who uh, had DAW books. Yeah. And, you know, there was, I, I was living in California at the time. And there was all that fun of, you know, mailing in the four sketches and then it would come back and he would have, you know, mused over the four sketches and um, that he wasn't, he, he, uh, the, the thing that is probably hardest on an artist is when uh, an art director says, we'll take this element from that sketch and then combine it with this element from this other sketch. You know, I'd, I'd much rather have them say, you know, I like this sketch or I don't like this sketch, but combining multiple sketches a lot of times uh, becomes problematic. It's hard to make a good uh, image, you know, and, and a book cover, you, you really don't have that much room for a lot of information on it, right? The, the top third is always filled up with type. And then when I'm doing David Weber's book, I'm aware, you know, David's name is, is a huge selling point. So I know that his name is gonna be big on the book. So there isn't a lot of room for a whole lot of stuff on the cover. So you've got to find something punchy 
that will that will sell the book, and I also want it to represent the book so that the author uh, will be happy with it. All right, and so you you've got your skin. Well, let's. I mean, all right, I'm gonna look at one of these as we're going. Um, actually, maybe we can look at the one you signed for me. Um, oh yeah you know that's Tony you're out of focus <laughs> I know uh, hold on a second I'll get it um, back there we go um, can't really I have a, a but this is this is by the way on above my desk at work oh nice yeah that that's that's one of my three or four favorite uh covers I believe this and is an honor among enemies um, honor among enemies right and uh uh, the, the, there's kind of a funny story uh, to that. I actually submitted that sketch for another book, for uh, a book by Elizabeth Moon. And I guess it was Tony who looked at that sketch and said, you know, we're going to have you do something else for Elizabeth Moon, but put sketch aside. And the next Honor Harrington book that comes up, uh, we're going to have you do that, this cover for that book. Um, because the, the, uh, the Honor books before that there, I guess David was never happy with the representation of honor. Well, that is correct. <laughs> um, and I was just, at, since I was back there digging through uh, all, all of our old Webers, I saw some of those old covers before um, before you came along. And there there is a distinct uh, likeness to Michael Jackson between. Oh, on, on one of the covers. Yeah. Yes. And they, they were all by excellent artists. You know, I think Larry Schwinger did uh, one. They had Gary Riddell. And these are all guys that have produced yeah, sure. really superb covers uh, over the years. And I've, I've never been, uh, you know, unlike a guy like Frank Rosetta or Ken Kelly, I've never been known as, as, a, as an artist who did, you know, sexy girls, uh, which is a major selling point. But, uh, you know, I think you know, Honor was never supposed to be a sex spot. She was supposed to be, you know, really smart and, yeah. you know, a military genius. So uh, when when I got the opportunity to represent her, you know, I, I didn't do any of those obvious things, but I, I still tried to make her attractive. So. Well, and, I mean, you catch that intensity. That's the thing that your your covers do with, with Weber, I think. Um, it. This is why I'm, I'm wondering when you're reading, um, because my favorite Mattingly covers are your big face covers <laughs> where oh. basically it's, 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 it's honors. I mean, this is like the quintessential one right here. Um, yes. Honor, yeah. It's just great. It, which is a wraparound. Um, so it's, it's got more to it. Than right. Just, uh, than just that. But, but this is, um, you just catch her. You just catch her character so well there. And then you have a bunch of missiles. Right, right. Uh, uh, that, that's actually a good example. There's no scene in the book that's exactly that, right? But it, right. It, it, yeah. it, it's all about honor. And she's basically put in this situation. You know, at this point, she's, she's kind of a diplomat. Uh, and so she's, uh, she's going around. Uh, trying to, to work out the situation, but by, by showing her her hands like this and then all of the hammerhead ships uh, coming out, I think that represented the book really well, even though it's not a particular scene in the, uh, in the book. Yeah. Did you, um, I mean, maybe you don't remember, but um, it, how was the sketch of this? How did it go when you started it? 
You know, I always had that, I had that idea that, that Honor was going to have her hands out like this, but then it was like, well, what, what else is going to go on the cover? So, uh, you know, David, uh, the Hammerhead ships are a, are a huge part of the Honor Harrington series. So I, I you know, added those Hammerhead ships on in the background um, and, and filled out, you know, it, and also all of the honor covers at this point are wraparound covers because they're, you know, they're big books for Bain. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the yeah, back cover, you yeah. know, there's going to be all kinds of type on the back. So you don't want to get anything that goes on the back cover to be super important to the, uh, to the ultimate book. Yeah. Or else so, we'll uh, just put a black screen on it and to make the type visible. So that's right. You, you can't make it, uh, you can't make it too busy. Um, I, and actually one of my covers for the honor series, it, it, it's it's one of my favorites uh is that one where honor is is walking across this platform that's above uh, a city but the back cover has all kinds of stuff on in the background and i you know i had to work a long time on that cover and of course it was all covered up by type and it was uh when it was put out nah. so well people can get the prints from you if they ever <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I sell prints of uh, all of my work on Etsy and uh, actually on my website, which is davidmattinga.com. I, I put all of the honor uh, covers up on Etsy because, oh, David has such a devoted audience. And I kind of like the covers to be seen without all of the extra stuff, you know, all of the type over the top of them. So you can see all of the detail uh, that, I, that I put into the final cover. Often we'll have um, one thing that 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 I like is that one of my my favorite cover designer we use and one of my favorite cover designers off usually does the Weber's Who's Carol uh, Russo, and she she creates the typefaces um, and she sort of does it to, to your art, um, which I think is cool. Um, yeah, no, I I actually I I love working with Carol, um, and you know it's one of the interesting thing about uh, about Bain is that they've managed to keep a house look so that when you see a Bain book on the shelf, you can tell it's a Bain book. And so many of the other companies have, have gone away from that look. You know, uh, my, my first client, Don Wolheim, he had these yellow uh, spines on all of his books. Oh yeah. Uh, and they, after Don died, they went away from the yellow spine. And I know people criticized him for having that yellow spine. But if you like Daw books, you knew it was a Daw book by that yellow spine. Yeah. So it had kind of a house look. Well, people but, certainly criticize Bane covers, but for, for all looking similar. And, but um, Well, you we, know, I, we I think a really house care. look is... But a house look is a good thing, you know. If when you stop selling, we might. Say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've got, a, a, if you like Bain books, you'll be able to recognize a Bain book on the shelf. And you know, at this point, all of the other uh, uh, publishing houses basically have all gone the same way, right? They all, the you know, I, I defy you to tell me a house look for Tor or for Bantam or yeah, any no, of these no, other companies. Not. Um, it, 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 it's something that, you know, we consciously do and you are aware of. Yeah. But uh, well, and the audience is aware of too. So, yeah. And well, you that's know, the that... most important thing. So a reader can tell, you know, that they're getting, getting one of ours, but, um, it, nevertheless, um, we have a fantastic array of, you know, and we're also known for illustrative covers, 
that are not graphic designy um, yes. things. We use, you know, the, some great artists. You know, you're just the tip of the, you're the big tip of a very <laughs> large iceberg. Put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. A lot of a lot of houses have gone more and more to uh, to non-illustrative covers, and you know, the bigger the name the author is, you know, like Stephen King. Uh, if you had Stephen King uh, publishing a new book, you know, it's going to be Stephen King this big, and then you have maybe a tiny little area for the uh, for the yeah. illustration. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I like illustrated covers. I, I grew up with, you know, the great Frank Rosetta and Roy Krenkel and these guys doing the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs covers, and uh, they were obviously a huge influence on me. Yeah. Well, I like when I see, say, um, a guy or a gal reading a Bane book on an airplane um, with a big old Mattingly cover, <laughs> it makes me happy because I know they don't care if anybody thinks they're, they're like, you know, up on the, the latest New York trends. They just are after a good story with a beautiful cover. Um, so it makes me happy as an editor because that's what I'm trying to provide them. <laughs> so Yeah. So, so on. Yeah, I, with, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> no, onward with with some art stuff from you, because you know we could talk about what makes Bane, but the so you scan in what you've done, your concept. When when do you show it to the art designer or the art uh, director or um, Tony? Well, in the, the case the, of the Bane. stuff. The stuff that I scan in isn't tight enough. It's just indicating where figures will go, uh, and and so I'll work up a, a little bit more finished uh, sketch. Uh, you know, I, I actually I can I let me show you some sketches. I'll show you. Uh, let's see here. I've got to get my cursor over here, and I can share a screen. And I'm going to share this one. And let's go over to my. Uh, you can see I've got huge amounts of hard drives over here. And um, I'm trying to think of a, of a, good, uh, a good cover. So you can see I've got folders for every project that I've ever done. And well, here's Alliance of Equals. And so here's the sketches for Alliance of Equals. And I had, uh, this was Bain. I always turn in a slightly less um, uh, uh, lower resolution than the actual sketch. So here's one sketch that I turned in and actually let me open these up so you can see you can see them full resolution. Yeah, so this is this was the cover uh, that Tony chose. Well, wait this, a minute, David, I'm not seeing this. Oh, you're not seeing it. I've got a I've got a bright. Oh, like, here we go. You got to share it. Yes. There we go. Okay, now there now you are you go. seeing it? Yeah. Now I'm seeing it. Yes. Thank so this this is the sketch that that uh, Tony chose, and there was another one that had that that same spaceship with the big space station in the background, and there's another one where I just highlighted the spaceship and and uh, took that out, and then there was a scene that Sharon. Uh, uh, and Steve described that was exactly this scene. And this is exactly the description of the characters in it. And actually I lifted this sort of 
for a, a later book. I, you know, I changed the characters in it, but I, you know, now that I have the sketch, I certainly uh, keep it around. And if I find something that uh, works out, so there's the sketch for Alliance for Equals, and then I'll show you the finish, and you'll see the difference uh, between the two. Um, let's see. I'll just open up. Yeah. So you can see. I mean. It, the the impact of the of the sketch should be basically the same, you know. There's that, and I always add a little bit more bleed around the edge, so that the designer can uh, crop into the cover if they want to. And it basically, I've just gone in and finished up all of the uh, detailing inside of this. So this and, is this is just something you show um, to the so. You you you've done this amount of work. For yeah, and and three of them three of them get thrown away or 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 saved uh, to hopefully come through to another another project, you know. And and sometimes uh, I don't get the the sketch that I really like doesn't get picked. Uh, that doesn't happen a lot, but you know, occasionally it's like, why on earth did they pick that particular uh, sketch? Let's see here. What else have I got? Uh, Exodus. Let's see if I have Alliance of Equals sitting over here. Exodus. Uh, yeah. This so here's. Like, uh, this looks like perhaps the, the adaptation of that other sketch on. Uh, oh yeah, that that's exactly it. Yep, uh, and I uh, I like that because it. Uh, what, what's the, the name of that is Trader's, uh, Trader's Leap. Leap. Yeah, I can I can show you the sketches that I turned into that. And that's on a different hard drive. Let me open this. And these are these are basically all the covers I have done over the year. There's Trader's Leap. And I'll show you the uh, the sketches for that. Oh, and this one I only turned in. Oh, oh, three sketches. This was kind of interesting. Yeah, there was there was this incredible scene in the book uh, where where these people are up on this Ooh, on this cool. hilltop, and it's this sort of psychedelic uh, entry of these uh, of these characters. And this was a little bit more literal. I actually showed you the characters arriving, but Tony didn't like those she felt it, it gave away this scene unfortunately happened at the very end of the book and she felt that it was giving too much away and this was uh, a, a scene in the book and you can see i i think i actually lifted the background from that other sketch and then i'll show you the final on this you, and and this was uh, a rare instance where Tony asked me for uh, some corrections. She, she felt that the, the characters' costumes didn't look futuristic enough. And uh, I actually really like that correction. I like how the final turned out. I added these incandescent armbands on the, uh, on the guy's outfit. Um, and you can see, there's the sketch. I keep the sketch in there so I can refer to it while I'm working. And there's the final and everything's you know, fleshed out quite a bit more. And you can see there's all the figures. They're in one group. Uh, there's the foreground city. They're in another group. And 
And let's see. Oh, and I, uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I hide my cat Orson in all of the covers. I know this. Yeah. And Orson right here is right there. She was a, a cat who died in 1994, but was very precious to me. This is yeah. one of the more obvious ones. Because we, I mean, we actually always do a, Orson, a, a Mattingly cat search whenever <laughs> in the office. So it's like, where do you put yeah, it? Well, it's got to be in so, there. <laughs> yeah, I like, uh, and this also on her boots, Tony had me, had me add this little bit more futuristic uh, look to it. And I think it, it certainly made it a better cover. So even though I go through all of this, uh, all of this work, I then have the sketch. And if I get a project that, uh, that things seem to, uh, uh, to be similar, um, I, I'll, I'll resubmit that sketch and change it around to match the book. So yeah, it, you do do quite a bit of work just to give the art director some idea of what the uh, final is going to look like. Well, you do. I mean, there's a some of these might as, are might as well be covers on themselves to me. <laughs> they're, they're so well, you know, I uh, actually on my website. Um, let's go to my website. <clears throat> my website is davidmattingly.com, and I like my sketches so much that I actually have a section called sketches. And these are sketches that I've done for projects over the years. And, uh, you know, a lot of these were rejected, but uh, they're, they're, you know, they're nice enough that I like the final. And actually this, this was one example. I did this for, I, I did a series of books called The Best of the Best of Trek. And, well, I guess that one isn't coming up. Uh-oh, well, I've discovered something that's broken on my, uh, on my website. I've got to go back and, and uh, have, fix this. It may have something to do with Zoom. But you can see these are like, this was a, a sketch for Doc, uh, Doc Shi. This was a sketch for Wizard World. This was obviously for Explorers in Hell. Um, I've submitted this several times, this, this idea of uh, basing this on a painting by Delacroix of Liberty Leading the People, mm -hmm. but I was never able to get that accepted. This, that was the actual accepted sketch for, um, I think it was Exodus. And here was another sketch I did for that. So you, you can go through and you can see, I've, I've fleshed out a lot more ideas than I've ever taken to a finish over the years. And then I've got these categories. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to look like. So this, this has pretty much every painting I've ever done. These uh, different categories. Yeah, I was just paging through that before we uh, we came on to to look at some of the the wonders. You have an entire honor Harrington section. Yes, I do, because that's one of the more popular ones. So there's that. There we go. Yeah, that's that. I've done something like eighteen covers uh, for David and Honor Harrington. Yeah, and there's another another set of them. 
So yeah, I mean, you if, if you're interested in my work, I give you fairly high resolution uh, versions. I, I should also mention uh, on this cover, which is one of my favorites, this was for uh, Beginnings, Worlds of Honor. And I have a, a friend uh, who's a comic book artist named Paul Chadwick. And uh, a lot of times when I've done sketches, I'll send them to him at the same time I send them to Tony. And uh, he he's always, trying to get me to work more dynamically. When I did the sketch for this, this guy wasn't leaning forward as much. And uh, Paul, in his note uh, back to me, he actually took my sketch and photoshopped it and made this guy lean forward more. And I think it really helps. It makes the, uh, the cover look more dynamic. Yeah, that's, a, that's an action-packed cover. Yeah. So uh, let's see, here's... Well, I, I don't have the sketches for that, yeah. When do you um, decide, okay, I'm sending it to the art director? Oh, Other when I have- Here's the deadline, I better do it. When I have four sketches that I'm satisfied with. Let me unshare so I can I can come back. Yeah, I, I mean, I've uh, occasionally I'll do four sketches and not particularly like anything that I've done. And I always want to submit something that I'm proud of uh, for the final. So, you know, once I've fleshed out four, four uh, sketches and I have something that, that I'm, I'm happy with, then I'll send them into Tony. And so she'll come back and she'll say, go with that one or. Yes, she will. And, and on rare occasion, uh, she's had art directorial uh, uh, touches like on that Alliance of Equals uh, she she had me make the uh, the the two uh, the the two main figures have more futuristic costumes. One of my one of my favorite covers uh, I did for Jim Bain uh, for Doc She, and uh, Doc She I originally turned it in. Let me see if I can find that cover. I think we have a print of that hanging in the office, by the way. Anyway. Yeah, he's got a, he, I, I did that as a tribute to James Bama, who's another one of my heroes. And he did all of the Doc Savage cover. So I was doing a riff on Doc Savage. So I turned in the sketch for that. And Jim Bain said, you know, uh, you got to make the guy's shirt red. And I, I think that that's totally what made the cover, uh, you know, pop and work as well as it did. So yeah, I, I like art director input when it's uh, when it's as good as Bain Books traditionally has been. I've never had any uh, any art direction from Bain that I didn't think improved the cover. Yeah, you're like, what are they thinking? Yeah, <laughs> well, that yeah, that's that's uncomfortable. I mean, I I once had a client I might have to take Orson out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had a client once who was who. Uh, Every cover I did, uh, they, they had me make changes in it. And I got into the habit of, of this was back in the days when I would hand deliver paintings because I live in Hoboken right outside of New York City. Um, and I would just take my paints in with me because it was so much easier to just sit there, finish all of the corrections that they had in mind and then go home rather than go home, make the fixes, come back, show it to them. They'd request oh, more changes. Really? Yeah. So. And you had, did you give them to them wet or? <laughs> well, you know, I used to work in acrylic. Uh, so, you know, acrylics dry really quickly. They were done. Yeah. Wow. I mean, with, with oil paintings, yeah, you'd, you'd have to wait a day or two. I mean, there was, there were famous stories of uh, Frazetta 
because he always worked in oil and he would use a dryer, like a Japan dryer, so that his oil paints would dry in two or three days and then he, or, or two or three hours. And then he would actually, he had ways of, of sending in an almost wet painting. But all of that was avoided because all of my, uh, all of my analog work was done uh, both in acrylic and gouache. And both of those are very fast drying. Acrylic dries in a matter of minutes. So you've got the the thing you you've got the approval on on the concept and the sketch. Uh, what do you do? Um, you know, I shoot models a lot of a lot of times. I'll I'll shoot myself, but it, it, as I've gotten a little bit older, it's it's harder for me to use myself. And since I've grown a beard, I've thought about shaving off this beard so I could use myself more consistently. Or I use my wife. Um, on that Alliance of Equals covers, I actually used uh, two kids in the neighborhood. Uh, for it, and uh, they were they were perfect, and you know I I pay them, um, and then I'll just you know go in and paint and paint and paint until the thing looks like it's a uh, finished cover, and then I'll turn it into Tony. So what do you mean by paint and paint and paint? In you know in Photoshop, since I have this digitizing tablet, I I will paint. Uh, you know generally I don't just plop photographs in there. If I can find a photographic element that'll work well, like you know, lighted windows or a sky, I'll certainly use that. I don't have an objection to it, but uh, most of my work you know, does involve some amount of painting in it, uh, even though I'm working digitally. Does anything you know, it, become physical again, or is this all in the computer at this point? It, all of my illustration work is in the computer. Um, as I've, uh, you know, I teach at School of Visual Arts, and there's a wonderful oil painter there named Steve Assell, and I've been taking his painting class, uh, and that's all in oils, and I, I never traditionally worked in oils, I always worked in, uh, in acrylics, but just the luxury of having a live model there, and, you know, being able to sit with the model, you know, there's really nothing like painting from a live model, painting from a photograph you know, there's a reason why all of these great artists like Sargent and, you know, Rembrandt, well, they didn't have photographs back in Rembrandt's day, but they, they work from live models because there's a certain magic of, you know, just sitting there with a, with a live model. So I've gotten a lot more interested in, uh, in analog painting again, but, you know, for illustration today, uh, I mean, I know there are a few guys that are still doing analog paintings. Um, you know, Jim Gurney, I know, still uh, does uh, does paintings. I'm trying to think of illustrators. There aren't a lot of illustrators. So what, is, I mean, what do you do physically? The, you are, do you, you use a mouse to do this? Oh, no, things? no. You're doing No, the, this, this is a, uh, I have a, what's called a Wacom tablet. Yeah. And um, I think I can show this. I, this is the medium sized one. I actually don't have the huge sized one because if you're working on a particular area, you can zoom in on that particular area and then use the digitizing tablet. And the, 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 the great thing about this is with a mouse, you only get one level of pressure. But with the digitizing tablet, you can actually you know press very lightly and get a very light mark. And then you press heavier and, and you get a heavier mark or you can set the brush 
to be very thin if you don't press down very hard and then be much thicker if you press down hard or you can actually turn both of those on at the same time. So Photoshop has, has become quite a, a versatile uh, tool for painting. You know, it's very similar uh, to, to physical analog painting. And in fact, one of the funny things is when I'm sitting there painting a live model with, a, with actual paint, I'll sometimes think undo when, I, when I've done something I didn't like. And of course you can't undo right. in an analog environment. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when I'm yeah. doing a painting I've, digitally. I found I'll, myself I'll... swiping manuscript pages sometimes to try to get them to roll up. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. When I'm, when I'm reading, but anyway. Yeah, yeah that, that's funny. Cause it, it, all, of, all of this stuff in the, uh, in the digital era, you know, when I first started painting inside of Photoshop, it didn't, it had only one layer and it had one undo. And now my paintings will be, you know, a hundred layers. And sometimes I'll, I'll try something and I'll, I'll look up and I always have my undo set to a hundred because if I try something and it turns out to be really bad, you know, then you can go all the way up to that, those hundred undos and get back to the state where you liked it and then try something else. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of- you have on a Photoshop that you're working on? You say like, dozens and dozens here oh yeah yeah i uh you know it's it, as my computer has gotten faster i'm able to work at a higher resolution and i'm also able to use a lot of different layers and one of the nice things about photoshop is you can also use transfer modes so like in uncompromising uh, honor those streaks of light that are coming out behind the the spaceships those were all in screen mode and basically it, it, it takes anything, uh, it, it takes the background color and it combines it with whatever you're laying over the top of it. You can do a lot of these effects in, in analog painting, but they're much harder to do. And Photoshop also allows you to, you know, like they have 26 different transfer modes inside of Photoshop. Sometimes I, I don't know exactly what I want and I'll go, you know, I'll try multiply, I'll try overlay, I'll try screen, I'll try lighten, and all of them give you a slightly different effect. Uh, so it's much easier to, to create, you know, very unusual lighting effects than- you know, I, have, I believe that I've seen, you you teach a lot, and, but you also have some online stuff. Is it Lydia something you've done? You did a <laughs> series of Photoshop courses that I I saw some of them. They were just amazing. I mean, you're an amazing teacher, and it <laughs> it um it it shows people things that you just never thought of with this software. You've like taken it to to the ultimate levels, right? I mean, well, thank you. Yeah, no, I uh, you know I've worked in Photoshop for. 28 years and then before that I had 20 years of, of painting analog and you know I'm actually I'm very grateful that I had that time before computers uh, were available where I was where, where I was forced to learn to paint and draw and all of that stuff I, I think that it gets harder and harder to develop those talents uh, unless you have to where so can you, you uh, where exactly can and if anybody ever wanted to take a Mattingly uh, one of these courses they still around um, they, yeah, if you buy a membership in lynda.com, Lynda. uh, my, my course is, is called the Fundamentals of Digital Matte Painting. And I basically take you through, uh, uh, it, you do a painting, 
and I take you through all of the basics, which is perspective and tone, and, and then using photographic uh, textures to, to flesh out uh, this castle. And then you can project that onto raw geometry. That's one of the reasons why matte painting has stayed viable uh, today is it, you know, it's very hard to, to actually, you know, I have you do a castle, but it, it's very hard to, to create a castle in 3D and light it and do all of that stuff. It's much easier for an artist to produce a painting of a castle. But in the old days- uh, Explain what a matte painting is just to those that don't know probably. Well, when I got into the business, uh, a matte a matte painting was done on glass, and you would you would paint something that would block out your plate. Uh, you know, for instance, in the in the black hole, whenever you saw the top of the of the Cygnus, uh, or you 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 saw a grand panorama of of the uh, of the interior of the uh, spaceship, those were all matte paintings. And you can still have live action actors. You can have you know, an actor walking into the bottom of the plate like this, but all the rest of it would be painting. But the problem was uh, when I got into business and you did it on glass, it was very, well, it, you know, it was almost impossible to move the camera. And there's so much emphasis on a moving camera in today's movies. You know, if you, if you go see a Michael Bay um, movie, he won't have a single shot in the movie where the camera is locked. And so that creates parallax between the, the objects that are in the foreground and the objects are in the background. And a painting can't have that. But with camera projection, you basically project your painting onto geometry and then you create a second camera and then you move that camera and it, that creates parallax within your, within your scene. So it, it, it looks like the rest of the production footage. One of the ways right up until about 1990, you could tell a matte painting in a show is a matte painting generally was locked. There were, you know, you, you had the camera on the tripod and it didn't move at all. And then, uh, you know, as, as directors were moving their cameras more and more, and there's this thing in, in cinema today where the camera, you know, it moves around a little bit and there's a little bit of jitter on it. And I, I guess that's just to uh, it interject a little bit more motion into the frame. Uh, you know, all very hard to do uh, with traditional matte painting. And, it's, and this thing called camera projection is what has kept uh, uh, matte painting still used in productions today. You know, when you watch Game of Thrones, you know, when you see, when you see a castle, a lot of times they didn't have those castles and they had an artist paint them. But you'll you'll notice there's still some motion in the frame, and you know the castle will parallax against the sky that's behind it. All of that is because of camera projection. <clears throat> so yeah, you, if you buy a membership in Lynda.com, you can you can uh, go through my five modules on that. And I, I'm, the one module I'm particularly proud of is perspective, because I think uh, a lot of young artists. Um, don't have, like I had an entire semester of perspective when I was in art school with a wonderful uh, teacher named Ted Yunkin, who has since passed away. When I talk to my students about perspective today, you know, they, they haven't ever had any perspective training at all. And in, inside of Photoshop, perspective is actually quite a bit easier to do than, than the way I, I used to do it with an analog painting. You can, you can set up grid parts and then you know, set up your vanishing points. 
so yeah, I would encourage anyone who has any interest in being an artist, look at that perspective section so that you can you can get a good grounding in uh, in you know how you create the physical world. Yeah. Well, all right. So apart from the technical stuff, so you're you are now working on what's going to be the final cover. Um, how do you uh, stay inspired by it? How do you do you get new ideas as you go along? And I mean, I, I it's hard for me to ask the right question. I know how I would ask a writer how how they would construct a scene or something like that. But well, you know, I've I've learned I learned the hard way uh, that if if I have a sketch approved, I generally try and stick by that sketch. And uh, when I was when I was young and just getting into this business. I did a cover for Judy Lynn Del Rey, and I got inspired uh, along the way, and I made some fairly substantial changes from the sketch, and she rejected that cover, and she said, you know, David, before you make any changes in the final cover, you're going to have to send me a new sketch in order to do that, so generally, I, I, I stick very close to the sketch that I've uh, given the art director, or if I all of a sudden have a brainstorm, I'll, I'll mock it up so that they can see exactly what they're going to be getting. Um, in, the, in the case of this rejected cover, I liked my original cover so much better that I, I basically went back and painted an all new cover for that book. And the, uh, the, the cover that I felt was much better is still hanging in our dining room. It's one of my favorites. So, you know, I had the option of painting over it in order to make it uh, like the original sketch I'd done. I didn't want to do that. So, yeah. Well, the, but you do bring the sketch to life. Oh, yeah. It's got to be a lot more detailed. And it's detail. It's, um, it's, it's, but even in such intricate work, surely inspiration comes in or um, this, the creative, because I can't do it. So, and most people can't. Um, well, there, there's, yeah. you know, you also, uh, generally I do my sketches at a lower resolution. You know, my finals are say 3000 pixels high by 1800 pixels wide, something like that. Uh -huh. And if I did my sketches at that resolution, it really, it really slows down my ability to make big changes. If I'm going to make big changes, I'm going to do it in the sketch, but you know, the, uh, I'm resing it up. It's, it's got to be much more detailed than the, uh, than the sketch. And like I said, if I, if I suddenly have a brainstorm and that, that has happened on occasion, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last cover I did for Bain where I made a huge change, but uh, you know, I, I, I now don't want to surprise the client yeah. with a completely changed cover that looks different from the, that, uh, mean, the sketch that I submitted. My question is more like the regular stuff that you're not going to make big, big changes on the, what is your mindset as you're doing? I mean, cause it's hours and hours, it's days, right? I it mean, is. Yeah. Of this work. And there it begins to come alive in a way. Um, are you in a Zen state? Are you, um, Actually, when I'm finishing up a cover, uh, I've, I've gotten into the habit of listening to audiobooks while I work. I can't listen to audiobooks while I'm sketching because my mind has to be engaged and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think up images for it. But once I have the image 
all that I'm trying to do is, is add more detail, you know, flesh it out so that it looks uh, as realistic as I possibly can make it. And then I want that, that creative part of my, my brain kind of distracted. So I, I listen to, uh, I have a membership in Audible and uh, I've, I've listened to their uh, books while I'm working and it sort of distracts me hmm. during so that time. You take your conscious off of it and you just let your, 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 um, your instincts and all this incredible experience that, you know, you go in a way, is that? Yes. Yeah. I, and actually, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this for years and, uh, but you want, what you want to get, uh, the, the point you want to get in, when you're doing a finished cover is that, that zone where you basically sit down to work and then you book up and it's four hours later. All of this work has been done on the cover, right? I mean, uh, you know, artists for many years have talked about this zone you, you can get into. And it's one of the things that I worry about with, with my students. You can't have a lot of distractions. I mean, uh, I know some artists watch television while they work and I can't do that because, you know, the television has moving information uh, coming at me. But, you know, audio books, uh, that's perfect for sort of taking my mind off of that. And it's much easier for me to get into the zone if I'm listening to a, a book that I really like. So you, you turn it in um, and they, what if, sometimes they hate it ever or do they generally, that doesn't happen much anymore. Well, I mean, I, hopefully when I've delivered the sketch, it's, it's given them enough information about what the finished cover is going to look like that they don't reject it right. outright. And you can say, well, uh, I gave you exactly what you wanted. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've made substantial changes to it, the yeah. client has every right to say, well, this wasn't what I, uh, what yeah. I asked for. Uh, and then they, they certainly can reject it. Uh, you know, I've done something like 2000 covers and uh, I, I, I've had, I mean, I had that experience where I had to repaint a cover because I liked my version of it. And then I had one cover that was, was never used and I'm not entirely sure why that was done. Uh, but it was it was for a, a book about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I'm not exactly uh, you know I'm, I'm more known for science fiction. And Elizabeth yeah. Kubler-Ross was this woman who uh, who had you know had all of this proof that their life after death. Oh, that's and she was. Yeah, it would it, because so many people have had a near death experience, and they all. Uh, experience this tunnel of light. It was a really interesting book, and I tried to I tried to do a good cover for it. But uh, you know, I'm a science fiction artist. I that's really where my yeah. where my head lives most of the you time. You could use. I I would think that that uh, that that one Leaden sketch with the two people appearing that'd be pretty good for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was done. That was done much later. I think yes, this, yes. Uh, this, this book cover that I, uh, that wasn't used was done sometime in the mid eighties. Yeah. Maybe if they wanted it, the, the reissue to sell, they could like come back to you and say, they're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I mean, it is the case that, um, that the covers are, are you know one third to one half is as important sometimes as for the sale of the thing and to set the meat not just the money but for the to set the reader's expectations their mind 
on, oh, this is the story I want, you know, to, to spend 18, 20 hours with, which is what they're going to oh, do when they read a book, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the cover, the cover is basically a selling tool. And I've occasionally been at conventions with authors who, you know, is like, look at this cover. Isn't it terrible? And I'd look at it and was like, no, I think that's a really good cover. And the author would say, it doesn't represent my book very well. Well, who cares? I mean, yeah. ultimately, if you've got a good cover that people are going to want to pick up, then they're going to read your book and they'll, they'll know what it's all about. But uh, a lot of times an author wants a cover that, you know, exactly replicates a scene in their, in their book. And that isn't necessarily uh, the best-selling tool. I, you know, there was a famous story uh, that uh, Michael Whalen told that he did a, a cover for a book, and I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but he was given a scene description and so he went ahead and he illustrated the scene. He didn't actually read the book. And when the book came out, he read the book and discovered that one of the characters only had one hand. And of course, he'd, he'd done the character with both hands. You know, I try and avoid mistakes like that. And you can only do that if you get to read the manuscript. Yeah. And David Weber is incredibly pleased with, with your covers. And I know that um, you do ask him things like, what medals does Honor have on? Well, you, like, you know, the, the Honor Harrington community yeah. is, is extremely you know, concerned that you get all of that stuff right. And, you know, some authors don't want to have anything to do with an, uh, an illustrator. Um, and, you know, David has been very generous with his time and, and uh, willing to tell me, you know, like what decorations, like when I, when I was doing the, uh, the star that Honor wears around her uh, neck, it's, a, it, it's an award, I can't remember the name of it right now, but I, you know, I needed to know exactly what that looked like because I knew that Honor fans would know all of those details. So I, I, I'm sure I've made some, some pretty major mistakes uh, on my covers, but it isn't for want of trying and going back and forth with David, trying to get the, uh, the details right. You know, some, some authors are not as detailed in their universes as David is. Um, you know, Isaac Asimov was famous for not really describing a, a lot of what his characters looked like. And so there's a lot of, a lot of diversity or changes as they change cover artists as to how that universe looks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you really can't say that about David Weber's books. He's very yeah. specific yes. about what the universe looks like. Sometimes entire paragraphs of, of, of specificity. <laughs> so David yeah. will be the first to admit, although he says everything he puts in there has something to do with the story. Um, never extraneous. Um, yeah. So, so, so when so you turn it in and then uh do you even look at the uh what happens with the when you when you interact with the publishing company as they make the cover you know uh, nothing i i when i was a young illustrator i was extremely concerned about the reproduction uh of my covers and you know it, it's a it's a cmyk uh process it won't cover, it won't uh, capture all of the subtlety of your original painting. Um, and I, I've stopped worrying about that. I mean, I, I really, I, I can't have any control over the printing of it. Um, you know, and, and occasionally 
I, I feel like the, the type has overwhelmed my cover. I wish they'd, they'd, they'd put a little less type on it, but you know, then I realize you know, this is something to sell the book. It isn't really uh, an avenue uh, for people to look at all of the detail in my cover. So yeah, I generally, you know, I, 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 I've kept copies of all of the books I've done. You can see on the, on the top three uh, shelves of this. So, uh, you know, I'm proud enough of, of my production over the years that I, I have kept copies of them, but, you know, you can't exactly go back to the publisher and say, I'm not happy with the reproduction on my, uh, on my cover. You know, there's a famous story uh, that you, you may have heard uh, that uh, Walt Disney pursued the author of Mary Poppins for many years, and she never wanted to have uh, a movie made of her, uh, of, of her stories. And on the night of the premiere, she came up to Walt and said, you know, Walt, I have some ideas on how we can make this movie better. And Walt Disney said, you know, that train done left the station. <laughs> so, yeah, that when the when the book cover comes out, that yeah. train done left the station. And, you know, occasionally I'll look at my covers and wish I'd done something better or different. But, you know, it's a it's a finished cover. And uh, what, I've, what I've are got your a, favorites now. Do you have any? Um... Oh, oh yeah. No, I, I definitely have some favorites. Uh, actually, one of my favorites is that Honor Among Enemies covers. Uh, I really love that. Uh, a cover I did right when I moved to New York for Jim uh, that was the cover for Ben Bova's Orion. Uh, and it's it's based on a on a uh, on a painting. Uh, uh, by another artist, uh, you, 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 can, uh, uh, you can hopefully see that. Um, and let's see, I, I like that Shapers cover uh, with the giant eyeballs. Um, I like the Beginnings cover. Yeah, I, I certainly have some covers that I, I like. When you come to my home, if I have a cover up, I really like that. If yeah. it's in my drawer, it's probably something, you know, that I, I wish I'd done better. But, you know, one of the things about being an illustrator is, I, you know, I, I hope to hit it out of the park every time and have it be something that I'm really proud on. And every cover I basically gave give an equal amount of work to. It isn't as though if I put more work into a cover, it's going to turn out to be a better one. You know, and every every year I'll do maybe five covers that I think are really, really good. I'll do maybe 10 covers that I think are okay. And then a couple of covers that, you know, just didn't turn out all that well. So it's one of the nice things about being an illustrator is you're not, uh, you're not stuck on one project. Um, you know, and you realize that as your production goes on, some of it's going to be really good. And, you know, some of it's not going to be, not going to be really good, but, you know, Do look you, at directors. Yeah. Do you work on more than one project simultaneously or do you just do them? You know, I don't now because I'm uh, I'm also teaching. I, I teach four classes at School of Visual Arts and Pratt Institute. So uh, when I was back being a full-time illustrator, I would work on multiple covers. But it's kind of hard to you know switch back and forth between uh, between covers. And I also uh, keep my schedule. Uh, you know, I I I I don't load it up as much as I used to with uh with cover commitments just so that i can um hopefully produce something i'm proud of and have enough time to do it in between the other uh the other stuff i have to do 
And people could, uh, if they want some of your art, they can get it at the website. Can do you sign those prints? Or? I do. Yeah, they're all signed in in uh, silver ink, and they're printed on Epson uh, art velvet paper, which uh, is acid free. So hopefully, they're not going to deteriorate over the years. So yeah, go to my website, and you can uh, you can find almost every cover I've ever done. I've noticed there's a few that I, I don't quite have up there, but you can look at sketches and you know see everything that I've done over the years. <clears throat> what, uh, what else do you, might you wanna add to, uh, to, to this uh, exploration of making a, a book cover? I mean, we could talk about this quite a while. Of course, there's depths far beyond this, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm a fan of illustration. I've, you know, I, I love illustrated uh, covers. And one of the sad things is a lot of uh, illustration has gone to photography. And that's one of the things that Bain Books has been bucking the trend of, uh, you know, among the highest paid illustrators uh, in years before were guys who did romance illustrations. And, you know, they were getting up into the budgets, you know, closer to $10,000 for a painting. There's actually a, a wonderful painter named Pino who used to just do romances. You know, I challenge you to go to a stand now and find a romance that isn't just a photograph of a guy with a six pack, you know, and maybe a girl in the picture. So that market has completely disappeared. But, you know, science fiction, because it's very hard to find photographs that you could you could put on the cover of a science fiction book you know they still use illustrators and you know I'm, I'm certainly grateful that I I chose to be in that field rather than uh you know in some of the other ones where illustration has has uh has gone the way of uh, photographs I just I just also think illustration says story more than uh more than anything that uh... yeah well, there, there's, uh, you know, uh, Robert McGinnis, he did all of the uh, detective novels, and I love his work. Uh, and they decided that, you know, Bob, Bob would shoot models for everything. And the art directors decided, well, why does he get to shoot photographs of these scantily clad uh, ladies and then take, uh, turn them into uh, paintings? So they decided, well, we're just going to take the photographs ourselves. So uh, I, think, I think these were for the Mickey Spillane book. So there was a time where you just had photographs of these two models, you know, it, sort of in the, in the same sort of scene that Bob would paint. But when you look at Bob McGinnis's paintings for the scenes, they were so much better. They were so much more evocative of, uh, of the books and the photographs, they were just sort of dead. You know, they, they, they didn't uh, capture uh, the, uh, the, the impact of the book at all. And I, I think that's what illustration at his best can do. Absolutely. And you are the best at it, David. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. About well, great, Tony. This was wonderful. Thank you for uh, making this so easy. And uh, I look forward to seeing this. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. 
Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. George Benton Tower, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. Well, so much for our wonderful secret weapon, Malachi Abruzzi said bitterly. How the hell am I supposed to sell this as the decisive victory we needed? It's not a complete disaster, Nathan McCartney objected. It looks like Asta worked perfectly. If they'd seen it coming before the last stage lit off, they'd have stopped any of them from getting through, and they didn't. Oh, that makes it much better, Abruzzi half-sneered. Now you're telling me I'm supposed to tell the public we fired off 1,200 of these wonderful new missiles, the other side didn't even see them coming until the last second, and we still managed to take out one, count them, Nathan, one of our 11 primary objectives. He shook his head in disgust. I'm pretty good. Hell, I could sell ice on Niflheim. I don't think I can sell this, though. No one expects miracles, Malachi, Inakenti Kolokoltsov told him. We'll just have to do the best we can with what we've got. That's reassuring, Abruzzi muttered. Then he shook himself. I really, really need Kingsford to give me something to work with. I'm sure he will, as soon as he can. Abruzzi snorted, but he also sat back in his chair, arms folded, and Kolokoltsov tried to be grateful for small mercies. Fabius had been almost as big a disaster as Kingsford had privately warned him it might. Unlike the CNO's worst-case assumption, based on discovering that the Manti's FTL system defense missiles were already fully operational, Almost 10% of Vincent Capriotti's battlecruisers had survived. SLNS Quebec had not been one of them, however, and the remnants of TF-790 had reached Sol less than 11 hours ago. So far, no one outside the Navy and the Mandarins knew they had or had any idea the Solarian League had once again suffered catastrophic losses. It would be a while before Kingsford could provide any sort of comprehensive after-action report or meaningful analysis of the attack's results. Without Capriotti, or for that matter, any of the task group flagships, just pulling together the sensor data was likely to take days. What he called the hot wash analysis suggested Abruzzi's dismal summary of Capriotti's accomplishments was likely to hold up, though. Kingsford's face had been bitter on Kolokoltsov's comm display as he described the impeller wedges which had interposed themselves between the Astas and their targets. We'd have gotten better results going after something farther from the planet, the CNO had said heavily. We didn't expect that wall of impeller wedges, and we had to be so careful about our targeting commands to avoid civilian casualties that the bird's tactical options were too limited to work around and get behind them, between them and the planet, for an unobstructed shot. We did find that one hole, and it looks like we probably killed at least a dozen of the ships they were using, more likely twice that many. But if I had to guess, they were freighters. Probably unmanned freighters, drones. 
So, aside from the nano farm, I think it's likely we didn't get another damned thing. I'm sorry, Mr. Senior Permanent Undersecretary. My people tried. Yes, they did, Admiral. Kolokoltsov thought now. And a hell of a lot of them died trying. But Malachi's right. We can't sell this as the win we needed. Anything more on that data anomaly? McCartney asked. No, Kolokoltsov shrugged. Kingsford says his people at operational analysis are working on it, but so far, data anomaly is as far as they've gotten. He shrugged again. Frankly, I think Kingsford's pretty much of the opinion that it's a sensor glitch. Only two of Capriotti's recon drones even think they saw it, whatever it was. Good, Abruzzi said with bitter amusement. At least I won't have to explain that one away. Last thing we need is for people to think the Mantis are still producing new secret weapons, especially when ours all seem to suck wind. I have to say, Omasupe Quartermain put in, her tone as subdued and anxious as her expression, that I'm a lot more worried about how the Mantis are going to react to this than I am about what we tell the newsies. Trust Omasupe to cut to the chase, Kolokoltsov reflected. And she had a point. The attack on Beowulf had upped the ante all around, and it was unlikely the Mantis were very pleased about it. Still, there were a few glimmers in the darkness. Even from Kingsford's current partial analysis, it was obvious McCartney was right. The Mantis had never even seen Asta coming until the final stages went active. That meant the weapon had performed almost exactly as advertised. If not for the freighters they'd managed to interpose, the strike would have been just as devastating as anyone could have hoped. And the fact that at least some of their technology had worked perfectly, that the Mantis' monopoly on superior weapons wasn't absolute after all, was at least a little reassuring. According to Kingsford and Vice Admiral Kendrick, Systems Development Command and Technodyne were working on half a dozen other projects, which should begin yielding results sometime within the next eight to 12 T months. How good those results would be was an unknown. But if Asta was representative, they might just provide a genuine equalizer, especially if they were employed en masse. And the preliminary vote on the taxation amendment went our way overwhelmingly, Kolokoltsov reminded himself. If Nang and Tyrone Reed are right, it'll sail through on the final vote week after next, too. If that happens, we'll have all the money we need to buy anything systems development wants. We just have to hang on long enough for that to happen, and the Mantis are friggin' history. He reminded himself of that firmly, very firmly. And somewhere under that reassurance, he heard the lonely sound of whistling in a cemetery. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a new shipment of paints based on human oils in wry gesture of camaraderie from the planet of acrylic-based life forms. Plus thanks and praise for David Mattingly, longtime Bang cover illustrator and the artist for the Honor Harrington series. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.